0: Hi, everyone. I'm Rachel. I'm filling in for Callie, who is unfortunately sick today. And um, a little bit about me. I'm a senior finance major here at Quinnipiac University, and I'm a fellow for the People's United Center for Women and Business. I'm so excited to be having a podcast with our dean. Um, welcome, Dean Rader.
1: Thank you, Rachel. And you're very good at welcoming. Uh, very much appreciate that you came out during convocation to help us welcome this year's first year and transfer students.
0: Thank you. I'm so excited to be um, having this one-on-one talk with you. I also want to wish Callie um, a fast recovery. I know she lost her voice, um, but get well soon, Callie. From your um, bio, I actually had a question about kind of how you decided to like go into um, higher education because you worked for a lot of different companies. How did you choose Quinnipiac?
1: You know, you've asked a combination question, and and I'm passionate about both answers. Um, both, I'm passionate about both questions and and the answers to both of them. So one question is about how I picked Quinnipiac, and the other question was about how I picked higher ed, and and and. Implicit in that I think is also how I picked business. So as you know, I am a sociologist by training. So the first is how I ended up in business education uh, from sociology. And when I was studying sociology, as I went further along in graduate school, I realized that what I had an innate passion for is taking the science and having it be put into some form of application. And it's a little meta too, because my dissertation was on university technology transfer and essentially how knowledge from the university gets put into use, whether in government laboratories or in corporations. So again, this this idea of knowledge and insight having a practical application. And I went to graduate school at Columbia University in New York and on campus, essentially at, at the intersection of where the sociology building is, is also the business school. And so what was really visible to me was business education. And it was very common for faculty at that school to be, as we would say, trained in a discipline, psychology, social psychology, sociology, and, and then Uh, work in a business school and that their research was focused on something related to business or organizations. And, you know, if you look at the bios of many faculty, uh, you'll see that while some did get their PhD in a business school, others got their PhD in an academic department such as, say, economics, right? It's not unusual for a finance faculty member, for example, to have their PhD in in, uh, economics. Thus, when it was time for me to decide what I wanted to do my dissertation on, I knew that what I wanted was to go into a business school setting. And I picked a dissertation project that had interesting questions from a sociological standpoint, in my case, the sociology of science, and also the sociology of law, and also would be relevant to business schools and to the practice of business. And and so I studied technology contracts, and that had an interesting feature from a legal standpoint, from a technology and science standpoint, and then also from a business standpoint, particularly around how the relationships between transacting parties had an impact on the way that they structured their deals. And the rest is uh, the rest is history, uh, a, a more than 20 year history of teaching at business schools around the world. So I started at, at INSEAD in France, I taught at the University of Chicago, and then most recently, before coming to Quinnipiac, at uh, the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern. So that's that's how I ended up in business education. But you asked a finer point about uh, how I how I came to Quinnipiac, and you know, I was at an inflection point in my life. My my boys are now 23 and almost 25. One of them has two quarters left of undergraduate and the other, my older son is in a PhD program. And so I was at a a stage of my my life where um, I could begin thinking much more broadly about uh, what my priorities were professionally, what I wanted to do and where I wanted to do it and you know to be honest i had a lot of friends who were advising me to take this as the moment to leave higher education and to go into a corporate role say corporate learning and development or to go into consulting either as a consultant or as a uh, a person in a consulting firm looking after say partner uh, professional development and and as i thought about it it seemed to me that my my you know, I, I, as I thought about it and mentally tried on those different kinds of careers, and uh, had a lot of conversations with people in in those kinds of careers. It didn't it didn't seem like it was going to be home for me. My I think my I realized that my epiphany was that my heart was in higher education, and that higher education is a place that. Uh, you know, could use people who care about leadership, who care about willing, to, uh, who, who, who are willing to take on complicated administrative responsibilities. And, and it was a place where I thought my skills and abilities could be of unique value. And, and again, it also made me think about, do I want to take my more than 20 years of experience in higher education and just move into a different, into a different sector? So once I settled or not settled on, but once I decided that I wanted to stay in and double down in higher education, the question becomes where and in what capacity. And I embarked on a broad national search and I considered many different kinds of roles and kinds of institutions. It became clear, though, that my priorities were to be at an institution that made a significant commitment to the quality of undergraduate business education. And that narrowed it by by a lot. At Quinnipiac, it turns out, now that I'm here, it turns out to be exactly what I was looking for. So a faculty who care deeply about their students, who are passionate about their area of, of expertise, who are eager to uh, continue to um, innovate in curriculum and in teaching methods and in how to work with uh, work with students. I was talking to one of one of my colleagues, one of your educators uh, yesterday, and she spoke about how, you know, with each generation of students, she learns from them. What do what did they need in, in terms of the style or the approach of the educator, what would reach them most effectively? And, and that she's very open and interactive with the students in her class to learn about that. And it's just inspiring to me that you have someone who, instead of saying, you know, I've been doing this for, uh, for decades and I know what's best, uh, has this openness to say, oh, no, my, my, my students probably know the best way to reach them. And my motivation, you know, in, in in her words were how do I take the subject matter expertise and help them develop it in a way that's going to be most effective for them? That kind of student centricity, you know, we can talk about it as a headline, we can talk about it as um, what's unique about Quinnipiac, but that kind of example really brings to life the, you know, what I would say is part of the this this special magic of Quinnipiac. And it happens every single day on this campus.
0: I agree. I think right now we are going through a time of higher education that no one has expected. We just came back all in person. And that's a change from being remote completely for the past year and a half or so. And so that's another big challenge that not only students have to face, but professors as well and faculty, they have to do even more work than we do just to get everything back in person. And how can you get these students engaged all over again when they've been so used to remote? So I think part of being at Quinnipiac is also appreciating the faculty and how much work they actually put into each lesson and how much we get out of each lesson is also very important. Oh, I have to okay.
1: say that it's it's remarkably enlightened that you said that, and however you edit this conversation, I hope that you keep that in, because I would love for my colleagues to hear just how how appreciated they are by, by the students. It's very, very thoughtful.
0: And all the uh, professors so far that I have also have been thanking the students about being very helpful, having their mask on all the time, but I don't think they hear it from us saying, thank you enough. So definitely so much appreciation for our professors and all our faculty working really hard to keep everyone engaged. Um, But you also mentioned a lot about speaking to people in the field and just learning from them and where you want to go with um, not only this position, but also just where you wanna end up and how you got here. But I know a lot of students, including myself, were about to graduate and were struggling with finding the right direction to go down. How do we find our passion? How do we find out what we want to do after graduation? Do you have any advice on that?
1: That that is also one of my most favorite questions to answer because one of my, I, I think most insightful pieces of wisdom in in my 54 years that i could offer a student is to is to really know that lives and careers are they're they're helixes they evolve they 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 are not necessarily linear you know i i have you know friends or or people i'm familiar with over time or young people who i mentor who You know, occasionally there's that person who has a a crystal clear idea that they want to say be a doctor, and they just move full bore in that direction, and there's you know very little deviation from that plan. Uh, But that's really the exception. Most of the people I know, they're making it up as they as they go along, and I think the challenge for college students, whether they're in their first year or even in high school as they're thinking about where to go, Um, but all the way through senior year. And I gotta tell you, even my evening weekend MBA students who are late 20s, early 30s, when we talked about the idea that careers are not linear and that they can sometimes be a winding road, so many of them come up to me afterwards or write me a note and talk about how liberating it is to to be released from this idea that they need to have it all figured out or have a clarity about those about those goals and and, and so I, the first part of the answer is to you know be kind to yourself and not hold on to this idea that it needs to be linear part of the challenge is that when people are graduating from college or figuring out what uh what might be their first job they tend to talk to people like their parents or their parents friends or people who are 20 30 years into their career and at that point you can tell a story in hindsight that makes it look really linear you know i could tell you well i started in at insead and that was a a role in france part of why that made sense is because I had an expat period where for about a year and a half, I studied as a graduate student in the Netherlands. So I had this international um, commitment. So that that um, made me prioritize that first job at INSEAD in France. And then it, it's why I took the roles I did at the University of Chicago and in some of the corporate learning, because that allowed me to continue to teach internationally. So I could tell you a story about that, but that's not how it happened. Uh, it, it happened one moment to the next and at a at a given inflection point, I looked around at, at options and opportunities and I considered what, what the possibilities were and I made the best possible decision I could in the moment. And at different points in time and life, it was, Taking into account different uh, different constraints, you know you asked me a moment ago about why Quinnipiac. Part of why Quinnipiac was possible was because I didn't feel like I needed to make difficult tradeoffs about geography with regard to my children. Fifteen years ago, I would have had a different answer to that. So the advice boils down to make the best decision you can in the moment, and, not necessarily consider what what your long-term career plans might want to be but consider what's what are some important factors for that first job maybe it's that it's a job that gives you a, a growth opportunity maybe it's a job that lets you work with a really collaborative innovative team maybe it's a job that does give you a chance to work internationally and that's going to be much easier to do as a as a single person right out of, uh, you know, you're in uh, the plus one program right after that MBA. Maybe it's a program where it's a phenomenal boss and mentor in a, might not, it might not be uh, the most lucrative job, but it's one where you're going to learn and grow. And that is going to open up so many more pathways as, as a next step. I know that was a long answer. If you had to boil it down, I would say do, make the best decision you can based on where you're at. But think about what your priorities are and look at what um, what would be the best thing based on those those values and priorities right now. Most of the time, when I see students, uh, especially undergrads, thinking about internships, which is one of the pathways to thinking about that first job, they're typically considering location and uh, compensation. And I think that that's missing a whole set of other potential considerations. Some I've already mentioned, uh, team environment, corporate culture, um, kind of organization. If you've primarily only experienced small startups, maybe you want to try out a larger corporation that has much more systems and processes and, you know, roles defined roles and responsibilities. It's, it's having those exploratory experiences when they're relatively accessible and short-lived, right? Way better to have an internship and discover, oh, that's not the environment you want uh, than to have that as your first job.
0: I think this is a great place to um, ask you to give us two pieces of advice, um, something that you might have told yourself when you were in college, uh, or something that you would tell the Quinnipiac students. I think the first piece of advice is
1: to identify important questions. And In a way, this is the the complement to the observation that we discussed early on in our conversation that careers are not linear paths. They are winding roads. And people are putting a lot of pressure on themselves to answer the question, what should I do? Or what what do I want my career to be? And I, I encourage to instead think about what are the many other questions that you might ask that that you can answer, like what are the qualities of the leadership I'd like to work with? What are the important cultural values to me? Uh, I think that if you can break things down into a set of smaller questions, but that are meaningful, they become actionable and they become sources of insight and guidance that, help people find their path. The other piece of advice that uh, I, I did when I was in college, I didn't know it as advice when I was in college. I just did it, but in hindsight, uh, it, it was a happy accident. And that is to try and take a few courses that, try and take a few courses that you might never have occasion to do, or you can't imagine you might have occasion to do when you leave the university. So part of what is phenomenal about Quinnipiac is that we are a comprehensive university and there's access to courses and faculty and experiences that might be outside of your major. So for me, when I was in college, that happened to be art history. And I, I just loved art history, and it was a great area to explore. In hindsight, I can see how my experiences and, and the visual interpretations and ability to discuss art and cultural artifacts has played a role in my career. It isn't necessarily an obvious connection to my career, but it definitely plays a role. And and from an MBA advice standpoint, I'll give you an example. Uh, A young man in an MBA program was asking me about course advice for his, his last year. And he had one or two courses that he could take. And he already knew that he was going into investment banking and he was deciding among a few different advanced technical classes. A turbo finance, a, uh, a derivatives, an, an advanced derivatives class. And he had the room in his schedule to do one, one or two of those, but I actually encouraged him to take art history. And I said, you know, when you're, when you're out and working in investment banking, there's going to be a lot of opportunity for you to have that next technical training. But while you're here getting your MBA, it's a unique opportunity for you to go and wh- whatever that art is. Because when you're building relationships with colleagues and clients, those are some of the things that they're going to be interested in. And you're building a muscle around culture and the arts. And again, it could have been music. It could have been theater. Anything that gives you vocabulary and frameworks for how to have those conversations will help you in your career in ways that you won't necessarily make the time when you're working uh, the grueling hours in in iBanking.
0: Thank you again, Dean Rader, for joining me on today's podcast. I'm so thankful for all your advice and to be able to have this one-on-one conversation with you. Well,
1: thank you, Rachel. And thank you to Callie, who envisioned our discussion today. And I hope you are feeling better. When you have your voice back, maybe we can have a follow-up conversation, whether whether we record it or not. I'm delighted to have had a chance to spend time with the People's United Center for Women in Business and just applaud the many ways that you help us build a strong Bobcat family. Thank you.